Hello, hello. Welcome everyone to another bonus episode of Curator's Choice. I'm your host, Ayla Anderson, and the bonus episode for today is going to go along with our theme of October in Weston, West Virginia. So we just did the episode about the Museum of American Glass, and so I figured the perfect follow-up for that is a story about Appalachian Glass, which is a glass company that is also in Weston. And the owners of Appalachian Glass have a really strong history going back into West Virginia's glassmaking. So for this episode, we're going to be talking with Todd Turner, who is the third generation of this family's glassmakers. His father, Chip Turner, also the owner of Appalachian Glass, and Chip's father, Matt Turner, was a man who also worked in the glass industry in West Virginia for over 40 years. So they have three generations of this incredible knowledge and history in the glassmaking industry. And when we went to go visit Todd at his glass shop, they have their studio and you can walk right in. They have a little seating area. You sit at the studio and you can watch them while they're making the glass products. And it's a demonstration. So when they're making the glass products, they're also telling you all about the history of glass in the area, the process of how to make the glass. And when we, we came in there, it was just so much fun to learn these things. And I wanted to share it with you guys. And I thought it would be a perfect follow-up from our Museum of American Glass episode. So that's what we have for you today. If you would like to see pictures of today's episode, I'm also going to have a video of Todd making glass, then please visit www.curatorschoicepodcast.com. You can also go to Instagram, of course, or Facebook. Also a sneak peek of the next episode that's going to be coming out. We're going to be at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, and we're talking more I know it's a big, big ghost ghost history there, but we're mostly going to be talking about the history of the hospital itself, and then we're going to have a bonus episode that has a little bit more to do with the ghosties, especially for our Halloween special of the month. So you have that to look forward to, so please enjoy. Appalachian. Appalachian. I got it right. Appalachian glass. <laughs> we're talking with Todd Turner, and this all came about because we came to Weston, West Virginia. I personally feel like kind of middle of nowhere place, but very adorable middle of nowhere place. Thank you. And we came into one of the shops that we saw on the side of the road, and we saw you working, and you were working your glass in the back, and I don't know any of the technical terms. Mm -hmm. You were furnacing, everything was hot, you had all these cool materials, and then you <laughs> ended up making this really awesome looking pumpkin. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to hear a little bit, because while you work, you also talk about the story of glass, where glass, cut, you know, how to make glass and what you do. So yeah. I really wanted to capture some of that and share that with some people. So why don't you start us off with a little bit about who you are and we'll go from there. Yeah. My name is Todd Turner and I'm a third generation glass worker in, in Western West Virginia. We, um, we're located here um, in what at one point in time was considered the hand-blowing glass capital of the world. Um, you know, that's a, I know that's a very bold claim for a very small community. But, <laughs> Maybe uh, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it, it certainly, um, you know, uh, was a factual term at, at one point in time. Uh, they say from, you know, from the dawn of the Depression in 1929 all the way up through 1999, that 52% of our entire country's stemware was coming from our little town here. 
And, you know, when I'm referring to stem where I'm talking about wine glasses, uh, water glasses, candy dishes, cake plates. So it doesn't plates. necessarily have to have a stem. No, no. It did, what I would consider, you know, stemware would be things that we would typically use at the table setting daily. You know, things that we use nearly every day but don't really think twice about maybe someone handcrafted that, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, it's, it's hard to believe, you know, most of those facilities had a minimum of three to 500 employees at one place. You know, when you start to consider, and I try to, you know, relay this message as, as much as I can to anybody that comes in, one man nor one woman was able to make all that glass on their own. It, it was truly that that term, you know, the hand-blown glass capital of the world, in my opinion, was only factual and only possible because people were working together. You know, I think anything else that has success, it's, it's 100% because people are all on board working together more so than pulling in different directions. You know, I, I think it's neat for me, uh, as I said, being a third-generation glass worker. Uh, my, my grandfather actually started in 1959 at one of the larger facilities in my town called the West Virginia Glass Specialty Company. And um, Grandpa was not a glass blower, but he was a mold maker. And I think when you were here, uh, we were working on a, on a few different items, but one of them you were referring to was a pumpkin. And um, uh, the pumpkin is an item that we blow into a mold to get that that optic pattern that makes a pumpkin look realistic, you know. So that's what Grandpa's job was, was, um, you know, crafting those molds. So uh, those candy dishes are precisely, let's say, 10 inches in diameter or uh, uh, a certain ounce decanter, you know, held the same amount of liquid between the first one and the number 1200 made that day, you, mm-hmm. you know, but... You know, it helps helps you have things that are you know precise and and all of that. But what were the, were the molds that he was making back then? Were mm-hmm. they wood molds? Uh, no, the the initial the initial run of them would have been made out of wood just to get a pattern set. They actually got the bugs worked out in house uh, out of the wooden ones, and then they would send it to a foundry to have a um, you know an iron mold made, and then um, you know then they would have that sent back to the plant. Typically. Dad talks about there'd be roughly seven to ten copies of that same pattern, you know, on on different molds. So if any problems, you know, came up that they needed to work on one that, you know, they would not be down of not being able to work or or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a little more, too, than a lot of of people think, you know, you... (laughs) Glass is just one of those things that's, uh, you know, it's an easy process and, you know, in five minutes, it does go from a liquid to a solid state in roughly less less than five minutes, let's say three to five minutes. However, you know, unless you want to watch that thing break on you, you would need to anneal that for a minimum of four hours. Here, we anneal that for, for a 12-hour period. So, essentially, everything that we make will not come out of the kiln until the following day. I am really unfamiliar. The only thing that I did, I was telling you earlier, mm-hmm. is I did a glass bead baking class, you know. <laughs> That's so, a good start. <laughs> I mean, it was a great start. It was a lot of fun. I made some, in my opinion, fantastic beads. Uh, or at least that's what my mom told me. I'm sure they I were. <laughs> God bless our parents, right? They, they give <laughs> yep, us encouragement. They were the best beads she ever saw. <laughs> but what is the process? Like, what is glass made of? What's the process of making glass, especially the way that you make it now? We make, which this, what we make is the same thing has been made in my town continuously since 1902, and that's called soda lime crystal. So we, there's two types of glass. Uh, what we make, as I just mentioned, is called soda lime crystal. Uh, we achieve that by taking silica sand, lime, soda ash, feldspar, 
selenium, cobalt, and erbium. And that's that's glass in the powdered state. So when I leave here this evening, um, I'm going to shovel that raw material uh, into our tank. Um, I'm actually going to feed it a little more energy or natural gas, which is what we're using as our heating source. We're going to melt around 2,500 degrees overnight. So in the morning when I come in, we're going to have, you know, crystal clear glass. At that point in time, it'll still be around 2,500 degrees. Uh, I'll take a little little gas away from it, but we'll be working tomorrow around 2,200 degrees roughly in temperature. So, you know, we go from the, the powdered to the liquid state, you know, overnight. So that's one thing I think some folks don't quite realize, you know, as in, the operation is a 24-hour days, you know, it does, the tank never shuts off. And our current tank that we're working out of at the moment, thanks to lovely Facebook memories and all that stuff, uh, <laughs> June, June 19th, 2013 was the last time that we had to rebuild or rebrick our tank that we are currently working out of. So, you know, that's, as I was mentioning earlier, that's one of my father's strong points. Grandpa being a, a mold maker started in 1959. Uh, Dad started in 1982, but his strong point initially was more so on the engineering side of things and, and building the glass tanks. So Dad worked at um, another large facility in our town called the Louis Glass Company, uh, which later became Princess House Manufacturing in our little town. Well, I mean, that sounds adorable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is so, a large operation. <laughs> so you learned a lot from your dad and from your grandpa, obviously. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, it sounds like your dad kind of started. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard, to, it's hard to even really, looking back on it, it doesn't seem like it's been that long, but it has uh, has been 20 years. We just celebrated our 20th year here a few months ago. One of the things I love about glass is, you know, they're finding it right now and dating it to um, Egyptian ruler tombs, and now that they're unearthing these things, and they're saying they can estimate that it's roughly around 3,700 years ago that it was roughly made, or, you know, someone made it, and I'll leave it at that, and I love to use science back in its face because, you know, using that principle, anything that I made today with Dad and Grandpa has a chance of being here 3,700 years from now if it's taken care of, you know. Well, and during, what you, while you were working, you took one of the pumpkins that you made and you were smashing it on the, <laughs> on the wood to mm-hmm. show how sturdy it was. So it's very good. There's a good chance well, that some of your glass will be there. Well, I, yeah, I mean, that's not, that is, and as I said, after I did that, I'm a big stooge. That's uh, it's not desirable for you to do that to your glass pieces. <laughs> but, uh, now he's backtracking, yeah. like, hold on, everybody yeah. who loves glass. I yeah. don't abuse my glass. Yeah, well, I, you know, with that annealing curve and all that, not to be too boring, you know, the, the longer that you hold that curve, you get something that's a little more durable without it being bowling ball heavy. Okay, so we did kind of talk a little bit about the process of making it, and mm-hmm. you talked about the ingredients that go in, you mix it all in, and then you let it set overnight mm-hmm. to get hot, mm-hmm. and then what's the process after that? Well, in the morning, uh, you know, for us here, we've been blessed, uh, that's how I met you guys, is having a place that folks can visit six days a week, watch us make whatever we're working on that day, uh, free of charge, and then um, can turn around and shop in the gift shop, you know, if you choose to. But for here, you know, unless a, a tour bus is scheduled or, or something that's a specialty thing, typically I'm trying to look at POs, what I'm maybe light on or what I need to make, you know, and then we truly try to delegate an entire day to that single item. But unless, you know, that PO specifies otherwise, I'm trying to make it in as much variety and color as possible. Just for the record, 
Blue is definitely the best color. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> red uh, is. But red is. So <laughs> you, you start off, and when you have the glass melted, it's, I mean, it's just, it's clear glass, right? That's and right. And then mm-hmm. you have to add other chemicals to it to you change add, the color? Yeah, you add other elements and or minerals to it to, to get, you know, your different colors within the glass. Traditionally, however, you know, those larger facilities would run large turns with one single tank. They would make a batch of that one single color. For us here, it's, it's beneficial to a small place like us to be able to um, to add the color secondary through crushed up pieces of glass. We call it frit, but you know it really helps us not to have to uh, ask Dad to make uh, one tank per individual color. If we wanted the glass to be red, you know we would have added gold and carbon to our batch. That's truthfully that that's why red or ruby is a valuable or collectible item because there's actual gold in you know in achieving that color cranberry is another you know another color that's highly collectible because you need selenium and a little bit of gold uh, in that to get its you know it's you know beautiful uh, pinkish reddish color you know by adding let's say antimony oxide however to that same batch when it's clear that turns it to a white or you may have heard that called maybe milk glass or something You've probably heard of, of the term of cobalt blue glass. Well, cobalt oxide added to your batch will give you your shades of blue. So, but yeah, I, um, you know, I've always thought, you know, those individuals that were mixing the, the batch and to get the bright, vibrant colors and all, you know, without those folks, for instance, uh, doing their job at, at any of those places I described it, that dad or grandpa had worked at, you know, even the crystal clear, if it was not crystal clear, it would have been thrown away. Like it could have made the entire process of people making it because after it came, you know, after it was made, it was um, put into, we were using a kiln when you were here the other day to anneal the glass or remove the stress from it. Um, Okay. So yeah, I kept hearing the term anneal, but I didn't understand what that meant. Well, annealing essentially means we, we want to remove the stress from that, that medium. In this case, that piece of glass, the stress is, is being introduced to the glass because, you know, when I was finished with it, it was still around roughly a thousand degrees in temperature. So just like anything else that's hot, you know, it was trying to expand from the inside out. But from the outside in, whatever temperature that we were standing in back there that day, right now, being in August, it was at least 90, 95 I mean, degrees I don't know. for I feel sure. I like it's probably like 200 degrees yeah. out there. So. Yeah. So, so, you know, that big change in temperature of roughly you know, 1,000 degrees and let's just say 90 degrees, you know, that would cause so much stress within that glass because it was essentially forcing itself to do two separate things, contract and expand at the same time. That's why it would break, you know, in less than five minutes. So that's why you put it in this climate control where the entire thing is one degree. Yes. So uh, as I say, for us here, uh, we hold it at 910 degrees. And um, so when I start at 7 a.m., and until whenever I'm finished in the evening, you know, when I stop, that is when we'll start to bring everything down from 910 degrees to room temperature, but over a controlled 12-hour period. So, you know, we have a, a controller box, essentially, uh, that is tied into our kiln to, to where we can see precisely, you know, what temperature we're at, we are at at what certain hour, but and as I said, I know this is probably the, the boring part of it, but it's, it's equally as important because without this being done properly, 
you can make a billion pieces a day, but if you're not annealing it properly, you'll open up the kiln in the morning to a bunch of broken glass. So yeah. I was curious too, can you take broken glass and just reheat it and melt it back down and use it to create something else? You you can. Um, is it more complicated than I just made it sound? Well, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Um, it is a little easier if it was clear. If it was clear, you know, we could essentially melt that back within our tank. However, let's say I had... Um, we were talking about red, white, and blue earlier. So let's say I had something that we made that was red, white, and blue, and, I, and we opened up the kiln in the morning and it was broken. If I put that back in the tank, uh, we we would essentially, instead of having a crystal clear piece of glass, a uh, crystal clear glass within the tank, we would turn our color a, a dark amber color. So if you've ever had like more than one gallon of paint, if you've ever if you've ever put them into one bucket, you'll know what I'm describing. You kind of end up with like a brownish, amberish color. So it's because you guys don't do the small batches, right? Your tank mm-hmm. is one large thing. So mm-hmm. if you put a little bit of other color in it, it's just going to throw it all yes, off. Yes, it, okay. it throws it off. So, so that's why I said it's it's important for us to have a good crystal clear base because we still make things crystal clear. But when we add, uh, for instance, you know, magnesium to it to give us a shade of purple, purple does not look truly purple if it started out as brown, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so... Mm-hmm. You know, you want the you know that bright, vibrant, true optical clarity to come through instead of, yes, you can recycle, you know, your glass and all that. But I promise you, if I had, let's say, something that was red, white, and blue the way that we do it, finished product, and something that was recycled, <laughs> finished product, side by side, <laughs> would not uh, look as you, good. You, you would understand why we choose not to do it. You That's know? fair. <laughs> so you do glass blowing too, which mm-hmm. I mean, so it sounds like your great, your grandfather created the molds mm-hmm. and then your dad created the business. Mm-hmm. And then now we have glass blowing. Glass blowing, as I say, I, to me is, is something I've, you know, has been a part of my life from an early age. But when dad still had worked at the factory, it's not like he, uh, you know, started Appalachian glass and had never made glass before that that was not the case. In fact, as I was saying, it was such a prevalent way of life in our area. It was actually taught as a curriculum in high school, oh, like wow. like woodworking would be in our high schools here. So the West Virginia Glass Specialty Company actually paid a gentleman named Jimmy Carlton to set up uh, near our high school. And um, they had a, a small, I have no idea the size tank. I want to say, it could be wrong, but I think Dad said it was like an 80-pound 80, 80 tank, roughly 80 to 100-pound tank. And, um, you know, he was teaching these kids to to make, you know, trinkets, maybe that be hammers or animals and, you know, things of that nature, which nowadays, Dad says this to, the, to this day, that that was one of the things that, had he known that back then, that kind of gave him an understanding of, of some of the things that, because truly, those are the type of things that the factory did not have need for. Like, the, when you worked at the plant, you know, it was... 1200 you know wine glasses today or 1200 dinner plates today and you know it was you know very meticulous but you know those type of things they at that point in time considered like a waste of your time you you know nowadays you see not only in our place but other gift shops throughout the world you know there's someone making glass it's those types of trinkets i guess you'd say that are are what sells so dad's exposure to that i mean he He'd have to tell a story because he, he lived it. I didn't. But his exposure in, in that area, him and my grandfather had really um, been really influential for me because it's nice to have someone that can maybe tell you how to do something. But I'm someone that can learn, I think, a, a little easier if, if you can also show me. 
you know, my two best friends are my father and my grandfather, and I, I'm not even the best glass worker in my family. My my dad certainly is, uh, you know, he's he's got his chops, but he um, he kind of lets me do my thing. And, and well, thank you so much for sharing some of your philosophy with <laughs> us. I mean, you are really really wonderful, thank and you. I love what you guys do here and the business that you have. And uh, if anyone's interested, the pumpkins are friggin' adorable. <laughs> and uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to post, I'll post this episode and I'll make sure to have a link. So if you guys are interested, you can definitely check uh, check out Appalachian. There you go. There you go. Appalachian. There you go. Glass. Before you leave, you'll get this done. Appalachian. Okay. Appalachian <laughs> glass online and they ship anywhere, don't you? Yes. Absolutely. And you guys can make pretty much anything. As you're limited to your imagination, yes. But I, I will say we, we, we have some core items that we try to stick to because we certainly are not, you know, the Amazons and the Walmarts of the world. But it's a specialty thing. As long as we have an understanding, you know, that, that it's not going to be a, you know, 24-hour turnaround or something <laughs> like that. But we, I, I like to think that there's, there's uh, not too much that can stump us, but uh, you never know. Along with all of the other amazing things that they make, there is something in particular that has a really unique history. So at Appalachian Glass, you can actually purchase what's called witch's balls. So the history of the witch's ball kind of goes back more than 300 years, going back to New England. And what it is, is it's a glass ball that's hollow. And inside, there are glass strings that are created. And early settlers would hang the witch's ball in the window or a corner of a door. And it was meant to ward off witch's spells. And also what they did was they would put that ball on top of their milk jug as a stopper. And the idea was that that witch's ball with the strings inside would catch whatever spell the witch was casting that was souring their milk. So I purchased two and I'm going to be using them for Halloween, but I just wanted to throw in that was another fun random history piece that I learned about when I went to Todd's Todd and his father's shop. Okay, great. Well, definitely if you want to support and buy some amazing pieces of glass and uh, I'll post a picture of an amazing glassware item that I'm getting bonus of podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Rogan doesn't have that, right? Uh, That's right. Rogan don't have no glass like this one. (laughs) So I thought that it didn't make much sense if I were to end quite on that note. Todd was so wonderful that he allowed Dakota and I to stay after the interview and he basically gave us our own private how to make a glass tumbler and a glass coffee mug. He showed us how to use all of the tools and so we were able to pick out our colors and, you know, put the frit in how we wanted it and it was so fun and so now we have these amazing glass tumbler and this leaf imprinted coffee mold that we had to blow out to fit into a mold and have the leaf print on the outside so that's what that was and it was amazing